it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, we're going to have a big hour. The great Carly Shimkus will be here. And a special guest, Tommy Mulroy in soccer circles. He's a legend. He's going to talk about how sports saved his life. That sport in particular, you'd probably relate to it. On this Thanksgiving, we're also following many moving stories today. New jobs report in, 208,000 people looking for a new job. They thought it would be 226, so they feel good about that. The market will probably respond positively on this Thanksgiving, so that's good. So before we go any further, let me get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. These are highly trained people that they spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars training like Navy SEALs and fighter pilots and things of that nature. And they just ran these people off because they, they wouldn't succumb to or submit to, the, to taking this vaccine. Yeah, that's former military doctor and officer Ronnie Jackson, now turned congressman on military uh, contacting former members in order to... Uh, bring them back because they wouldn't get vaccinated. Woke Pentagon costing us power, global prestige, and compromising readiness. It all starts and ends with this White House, and our enemies know it. We will discuss. Number two. I tell Democrats, you have got to secure the border. I tell Republicans, we've got people here that if they had a visa, a worker visa permit, and let them work and pay, basically pay taxes, it would be a benefit. Yes, we need workers, but we don't need illegals. Now it's a problem for the Dems, too. I'm talking border. It's been flooding their cities, and now their nation seems to be ready for a Trump crackdown, which also explains his surge in the polls. We're going to look at the polls that have Biden and his team pushing the panic button. Number one. The only reason Hamas did not kill seven million Jews is because they lacked the military capability to do so. Israel could have killed two million Gazans on October 8th. They chose not to. So well put. Israel at war and hostages for prisoner swap are about to begin. It looks like 50 women and about eight children. We're going to talk about what this means, but there's still over 200 overall in captivity. And if the four-day pause is going to get us more hostages, or is this exactly what Hamas wants? It's an impossible situation. Think about it. We just talked to a a former Mossad uh, officer, and he says it's blackmail. No doubt about it. It's blackmail. I mean, that's what they did. They they create this carnage. They know there's going to be retribution, but they know it'll be measured to a degree because if they take hostages and according to their plan, they're shocked that they got as many as they got. Sadly, uh, they're shocked at that. But what it means, I thought that was so well put by Admiral Stavidis. I'll give you the whole soundbite, then I'll talk about it. Cut one. Israelis were saying, go into Gaza, simply flatten it, destroy mm-hmm. the entire thing. Um, they chose not to. They chose to, to take this path using precision approaches to include special forces. Um, th- the only reason Hamas did not kill 7 million Jews on the uh, 7th of October is because they lacked the military capability to do so. Israel could have killed 2 million Gazans on October 8th, killed them all. 
they chose not to because that's not who they are. And those, I think, are something we should bear in mind is the false equivalency you sometimes hear. Yeah, you know, I hope the admiral doesn't mind. I'm going to steal that. Uh, That is so well put. People are, why are you hitting hospitals? Why are you bombing streets? There are civilians. Yeah, they also sent millions of text messages. They also dropped flyers, told everyone to go south, and then get word that Hamas is in hospitals, mosques, and children's centers. So when they do a rescue, they get information about tunnels right under this hospital. Then they get capture Hamas terrorists, and they tell more stories of it. They find the tunnels. They say some of them are just like doctors. Others just use these uh, operating rooms to operate. They find M16s. They found uh, RPGs. Then they find in a mosque a whole weapons manufacturing center. So all they needed was the raw material. And people say, well, thousands of Hamas, uh, of Gazans died, of Palestinians died. All right. Uh, I don't know if any of that's true. I mean, I mean no, there were people died, I get, I guess. But I don't believe anything Hamas says. But most Western still leaders, European leaders, they believe everything Hamas says. And they don't really trust what Israel says. How did that happen? There was only one victim on October 7th, and we know who they are. Byron York, about the swap. Cut five. First of all, it's a good thing having 50 Israeli hostages released is a lot better than having none released. Uh, On the other hand, every time Israel lets up in its attack, at every 24-hour period where it stops the attack, is time for Hamas to regroup and recover a little bit and extends the period of time that it takes Israel to do what it feels it needs to do uh, in Gaza. So it does extend things. It shows the power of taking hostages to capture the entire world's imagination and to force this sort of thing. Uh, but on the on net net, you've got to say, if you can save these people's lives, it's a good thing. So, you know, they lost track of them. And Dan Senor told us this first, that almost the minute they crossed the border, other groups just grabbed them. I mean, I mean, there's 250, we think. So one of the things that Netanyahu says, that Hamas could potentially locate 30 more Israeli mothers and children beyond the initial 50, and that the halt in fighting could be extended by an extra day for each group of 10 uh, of more Israeli hostages are located and freed. So Hamas has got to go find them. Now, again, I'll just take this because I don't know. I'm not in Gaza. I'm going to go by people that I trust that have people that are fighting this war, and that's what they're saying. So the deal was put in place where after hours of debate, and it was thanks to a 2014 amendment uh, to the government law, instead of a prime minister making a decision on the, on the balance of a hostage swap, because you've got 150 Palestinian prisoners that are going to be released, none with blood on their hands, they say. So for that to happen, the whole their whole uh, parliament, their whole national security advisors, they all have to sign off on it. So they did sign off on it. They're going to give up 12 to 13 per day over the course of five days, and then they'll fight again. Now let's play this out. Think about this. So you get off and you see the 50 and you plus the eight children. Then you say, uh, okay, let's start fighting. And they say, wait a second. You want more? Yeah. Wait a day. Give you five more. Okay, let's start fighting. It's good. Wait, you want more? Wait two days. I'll give you 10 more. And they got the pressure. And I get it. Family members going to be pressing Netanyahu and his government. They'll say, of course, you got to say, we got to get to 220. But the longer you wait. The more they rearm, the more they recalibrate, the more they get out, sneak out, the more they operate, the more they they are able to reconfigure. And you have to weigh that as a balance. And that's what Hamas does. That's their great cake and hostages. You know, they learned it from Iran, who gets maximum maximum mileage 
out of all the hostages they take. Here's Michael Oren, former ambassador to the U.S., Israeli ambassador. Cut to. We're dealing with Hamas. We're dealing with Hamas. Hamas does not negotiate in good faith. It has broken every ceasefire agreement you know, over the last 15 years. Uh, Hamas could say, oh, we'll release 50 people, but hey, we couldn't find 50, 15 or 20 of them. And they'll try to drag out the ceasefire from four days to six days to two weeks because a ceasefire is what Hamas wants. A ceasefire means Hamas wins. It means Hamas gets away with mass murder. It can rearm, regroup, and strike again. And it's pledged to do that. So we've got to be very, very cautious. Um, Hamas will use a ceasefire to move its troops around, to booby trap the entire Gaza Strip. So the other thing that's happening at the same time, the Houthi rebels are trying to rocket into Israel. They just uh, they just hijacked a ship. They thought it was of uh, staff with Israelis. It's not. It was Japanese and British. Uh, so we got to look out for them. And then our guys have been targeted over 65 times. And yesterday we hit back for the first time of the one of the Iranian militias in Iraq and hit them hard. But when are we going to start hitting them to the point where they don't hit back? And what one thing I'll find, this Pentagon spokeswoman is just horrific. And she came out and said, no one's been seriously hurt from these rocket attacks from these militias. Really? TBI means traumatic brain injury. What about those three words do you think is a minor infraction or not serious? Traumatic brain injury, 27 prior to the rocket attacks yesterday. That Maybe, you know what it is? Maybe an injury that doesn't happen to you is not a big deal. But it's a big deal to almost everybody listening to this show. And almost everyone sitting in their press briefing. So when we come back, uh, I'm going to continue to talk about this. Also talk about Little 2024. And I'm going to break down what's happening with our military because it's more than disturbing. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. You better start taking your trading seriously. I'm a big fan of law enforcement, but you really want to have an honest look at your uh, at your SWAT training. I know that these SWAT teams get together about once a month. Two, the Alert Program, which uh, is a $130 million program funded by state and federal money out in Texas. And what we saw in Uvalde may have been a reflection of that training, which in my opinion is a little outdated. So that's Aaron Cohen, uh, Israeli special ops veteran, just talking about getting ready for a possible terror threat here. You know, I don't know if they're just covering themselves. Let's just hope the best. But they're saying with the, with Hamas, Hezbollah, with the out-of-control border, they're not using those terms because it would make the administration look bad. But let's just say with an immigration issue, let's just be politically correct. That's where they're relaying it to us. There's a high reason to be worried about a terror attack in New York. 
uh, the governor, who always wants to look tough, comes out and says, we're going to start bolstering up the Joint Terrorist Task Force. Well, really? The same one? Maybe it wasn't your choice, Governor, but the same one that was pared back about three months ago where they said not much of a need, we're going to look to pare it down? That's how quick things change. But you're also stopping two classes of NYPD cops from going through the academy because you don't have money. You claim because of budget cuts and you still have a deficit because of illegal immigration. So uh, that's what people are worried about. We heard a lot. We don't need. I think uh, America has gone through the ringer on terror, the worry on terror ever since 9-11, 25 years ago, even though some have uh, forgotten that. So I want to touch on what Iran's doing. Iran through the militias is rocketing us. They only understand strength. We've been over this over and over again. It's been the same case since 1980. They know if they challenge us directly, they are dead the next day. The Iranian, Iran, Iran attacks us. The whole country blows up. So what do they do? They get proxies to go after us and say, yeah, I have nothing to do with that. We are actually telling them to knock it off, not tell their proxies to knock it off. I mean, number one, I didn't even think we had communications with them, but we do. Number two is they're not going to knock it off because you tell them to knock it off. Are you kidding? I thought, Mr. Mr. Bryson, I thought you had all these years of experience. So right now, Iran, through a militia, has attacked over 60 times. And I've shared this with you. I've gotten emails from people who have kids overseas serving, relatives, and it's much more than 60. And they got the 900 in Syria and the, uh, and the 2,200 in Iraq. But we also have others in Kuwait and Qatar and UAE. They said the the rockets are going into Kuwait, too. John Radcliffe on how Iran should be dealt with. He used to be uh, DNI for Trump. Cut 19. Cut 10. If this is success, as the Biden administration defines it, I'd, I'd hate to see failure. If, if success is uh, yeah, 66 I... attacks in 30 days, 60 Americans with traumatic brain injuries, and on the other side, Zero Iranian injuries, zero Iranian casualties, zero Iranian uh, attacks on directly on the IRGC. Uh, there's been, frankly, zero consequences for Iran for their bad actions. And history tells us that's what it's going to take. So that is John Radcliffe saying he's frustrated. He's frustrated because he knows the way Iran needs to be treated. and He sees them not only more emboldened, richer. Closer to getting a nuclear weapon. Everything bad. Because these, this administration, President, the previous administration, Democratic administration, eight years of Barack Obama, thought there was a path forward with this evil regime. There is not. The other story which I find fascinating is what's going on at the Pentagon. Fascinating for the wrong reasons. And their woke agenda is, is, is a series of classes, courses, and educational opportunities for people who want to get, uh, get involved in equity and equality when it comes to our troops, this has never been a problem in the past. In fact, this is one of the most equal places outside that horrible era of segregation. Uh, a place for equality and meritocracy has always been our military. Sure, there's this, this, uh, there's a issue of, uh, of um, you know, politics in it. But for the most part, the army's being slammed and the military's being slammed for asking for $270 million for their diversity agenda. Taxpayer-funded diversity agenda. The figure surged in last year from $28 million to $114 million in one year. In the department's initial request, uh, in 2024, it's now doubled. 
The Pentagon has repeatedly pushed for further adaption of the DEI agenda and its operations. The department's strategic management plan for fiscal 22, 22 through 26 listed one of its goals, inculcate DEI principles across DOD efforts. So no longer get me the best warfighter. What I want you to do is get me the, the one who can check the most boxes. It's sickening. Here's uh, and it's it's nuts. And I'm going to talk about this on the Saturday show, too. Uh, Here is Wendy Patrick. Uh, She on on, she was she wrote in on another program the Pentagon has, and that is to allow the 1900 people that we kicked out because they wouldn't get vaccinated back in. Here's what she said. Cut 15. I think it was just a matter of time, Trace. I mean, we remember the the no jab, no job mentality. Uh, We all thought that would be short-lived because you can't afford to lose. These brave men and women that love their country and just wanted a job where they could serve their country. Mm -hmm. And they were shown the door in a fashion that they didn't think was fair, that didn't provide this recession mentality that it's only going to be a matter of time. And so now when they're being asked to come back, it wasn't just about uh, the loss of a salary. It was about the betrayal of trust. And that's one of the reasons that they're citing for not even wanting to consider it. They will have their records corrected, but they won't want their jobs back. Right. Uh, So they get so no longer going to be dishonorably discharged. Many of them might want their jobs back. But think about this. You spend maybe 18 years. You don't want to get a uh, you don't want to get a a, uh, vaccine because you don't really trust it. Now, in this case, you're going to be not going to believe it. This Lieutenant Colonel Danielle Smith she said, hey, I'm pregnant. Uh, I don't really want this uh, vaccination. I'm worried about it. You don't know anything about it. I'm pregnant. I'm not going to put my baby in jeopardy. Wrote a letter for an exemption, and she gets rebuked and gets rejected. And now they want her back. Cut 13. They've lost my trust. They've lost my faith. They've, they made it very clear to me that they didn't care about my health and well-being. They didn't care about my personal opinion, my professional opinion. They didn't care about my family. Um, you know, my babies, and it's it's hard to come back from that. They've crossed the line. Yeah, uh, I would not. I mean, unless I had no op- another opportunity, I would just change the way I'd left. But if I was 19 years in and 20 years gets me my pension, I'd probably go back. I'd suck it up. But I said it at the time, too. I had Admiral Kirby on. Admiral Kirby, he's John Kirby, and he's the press secretary that fills in because – Uh, The current one is absolutely awful. And anything military-related, he'd step in. And he was on our show on Fox Friends, and he said, oh, yeah, I I don't blame the Army for kicking all these people out, the military, for kicking these people out who won't get a vaccination. I said, listen, we're not hitting our recruiting goals. These people have served with uh, tremendous valor, and they've obviously done a good job. They're still in. You want them in or you would have kicked them out. And they've taken other vaccinations because they were established. This one's brand new. They don't feel they're at risk. They are not somebody in that bracket, age bracket, that would be susceptible to getting it. If they do get it, they're going to survive. If they have underlying conditions, they can make their own decisions. And he said, no, I totally backed the Army on that. We had a big argument on it. It turns out I was 100% right. And the thing is, military officers should know better. They should have went to bat for the men and women serving. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, Tim Tebow's in studio. And for the first time, uh, officially, I'm meeting his wife, 
to me, Lee Tebow. Are you kidding? Brian. I sat next to you on a plane two weeks ago. But I've never met you together. That's fair. Right? Yeah. But uh, and I never would formally introduce. But let's be honest, and Brian. You didn't even know that Demi was sitting next to you on the plane a couple weeks ago. Well, I knew she was important. <laughs> uh, and Coley Shimkus is in studio, too, hold on, hold if you're smart enough to watch Wait, Fox News. There are a couple things I need to say right now. First of all, how could you not know? That this gorgeous angel was sitting next to you. I know. And also, about 30 seconds before we went on air, he said, all right, so sorry to ask, is your is the pronunciation your name Demi or, or Demi? Demi or Demi? And she said, it's Demi. Yeah. And you said, I'm going to get it wrong. And guess <laughs> what? You got it wrong. All right, good. So let's talk about something important. What brings you guys together at this time with Thanksgiving just hours away? Mm-hmm. Well, we're so fortunate to be able to partner with Price.com, um, something we believe in so much because it's an all-in-one savings platform that helps people save money, make money, or make money matter. Right. And they do it with coupons, with um, advice, uh, advanced um, comparison shopping. They do it with cash back. And then there's over 200,000 nonprofits that are a part of it that with the money that individuals save, they can choose to give back to those nonprofits if they want. Or they can buy another pair of shoes that we probably don't need, but there is the chance, there is the op- opportunity to yeah. give back to and something And we think that it's matters. really special. Yeah. Now, Carly, you don't like this program. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I'm trying to create controversy. Oh, okay, got it. No, I am I am pro-price.com and I am pro-giving back you to are. the less fortunate. Um, so we just had uh, Demi and Tim on Fox & Friends. And I didn't know that Price.com was as cool as it was, where you could choose. You could choose to spend money on something that you've been hoping for, Mm. or you can give back to a charity. And your charity is one of the 2,000 that are affiliated. 200,000. 200,000. And they they vetted them, tried to find so many of the the best nonprofits Mm. to put on there. And so um, they even, just like they want to match you with the best, um, whatever you're looking for, what your favorites, they do the hard work for you. They've Mm -hmm. also tried to do that with nonprofits to find good ones that, um, you know, have passed so many of the certifications and criterias, so it makes it easy for people to shop, but then give back. See, a lot of people want to give back. They don't know how. You're saying you go here and it'll lead you there. That's right. And one of the things I love so much about this platform is it's done the work for you. It saves you time. One of the greatest gifts we can give around this time of the year is the gift of time, right? And so instead of going store to store, platform to platform, trying to find the best price, they have done all of that work for you so that you can have more t- more time with your family. And they also have a ton of essential shopping, you know, places. Yes. A, a grocery store. Costco's on there. You yeah. know, this time Hotels, of the year. Hotels, flights, wh- yeah. whatever. Everything that you need this time of the year to be able to be with family. They're making it easier That's and so more great. impactful. Yeah. So how are you guys celebrating Thanksgiving? Well, um, we saw your report a little bit earlier about all the flights getting canceled, yeah, and we're so like, we "Oh, we're making it home. wonderful, yippee!" So first, we got to actually get home, get yeah. to the airport, and then we we have a, a few we hours at the house, and then we will go to the Iron Bowl um, for for TV for for doing that for college football, ESPN, nice. and SEC, um, it, which that's in Alabama, and then we will um, be heading to Gainesville for the Florida Florida State game Saturday night because he's getting honored in the. Hall of Fame. That I, I no, said that completely wrong, but now you don't know anything about football. No, but, but I know who, a lot about rugby. So yes. right, but yes. would, do you care that he's getting the Hall of Fame? Of course okay, I do. I just want to make sure. No, she's I, super supportive. She just doesn't know what it means. She doesn't know the rules. Uh, yeah. no, she doesn't, uh, know, the doesn't rules. know the rules of the game. Yes. I don't know the rules. She's one, doing okay one, with that one time, we were at the national championship <laughs> when really? Alabama was facing Clemson, and this is when Clemson upset Alabama, and she's like. 
why are why are they standing there? Like, and I was like, baby, it's a, it's a TV timeout. Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, in rugby, it's just nonstop. Never it's, yeah. It never stops. You I know? think that's a valid question. Yes. I do. When they say the game is 80 minutes, it's 80 minutes, not three hours. Yeah, I know. Football right. games are long. Yeah, we do. So we say 60 minutes, and it's, it's really like three net, and a half hours. No way. Yeah. <laughs> and that was famous in my house. It was like, it's at the two-minute warning, so can you hold on for dinner? It's like... No, because it's going to be an hour, and showing yes. up is an hour. <laughs> it's so true. Right? It's so true. Yes. So, what does it mean? To, I, you hate you hate attention on you when pouring out your personal accolades. You're all about team, but this has got to be a good feeling, Tim. Well, it, it's humbling, but it really is. Whenever you get an individual award like this, and it's not trying to be humble, it really is because of all the support, right. the amazing players, the amazing coaches, the support, um, the support of my parents. Um, the support of so many people, uh, amazing receivers and offensive line and great defense. And it, it really is. And I know people just say that because it's supposed to be a catchphrase, but it's true. And especially I think, in football. It, especially in football. It's not, there is no individual awards because it takes everybody to get it done. That's one of the reasons I feel like it's such a, an amazing sport is because it actually teaches teamwork. It's not just about you. The only reason that you can get six in the end zone is because 11 people came together for something bigger than themselves. Wow, that's awesome. I've never uh, thought so uh, seriously about how important sports are until Mm -hmm. I had a son. And I was thinking about his future and how important, especially with social media Mm -hmm. and screen time and bullying, how important being outside and being a part of a team is. And I know it's done so much uh, for your your future and it's brought you to where you are today. And uh, there are so many kids that maybe don't have – a good home life or yeah. don't have a good uh, structure to support them. And the only thing they have is a sport. Oh, yeah. So, so many right. places. I just got to speak for a nonprofit two nights ago that is doing amazing work and helping um, kids get off of the street mm-hmm. because of sports. And they're right. using that as an avenue yeah. to encourage, inspire, make a difference. Don't in their be a life. part of the gang, right. be a part of the team. That's, That's right. right. And it really does make a massive impact. Yeah. I mean, it teaches you determination. I, I, I'm not a pro athlete by any means, but I love playing sports all through high Where'd school. You play? I played field hockey and I've got a scar to prove it so um love playing field hockey love running track but what i love about sports is like how unifying it can be you know in south africa we have a national team which is something that i miss a little bit in the in the united states you know when the the whole country only really gets to rally behind one team like for the olympics because football is every every state is kind of a little bit different but um you know sports can be so unifying yeah i guess i mean think about what what it just was for the spring box in south africa they just won the world cup a week two weeks ago Ago. Yeah, a month ago. Yeah. yeah. They yeah. did a movie when you guys first won the World Cup when Mandela was the president. I yes. saw the Invictus was yeah. unbelievable. It was. Now we and have it's, it's that way. It's still that way. And to be able to, you know, just have everyone rally behind the same cause, behind the same yeah. team. and it, Because it gives people something that is bigger than themselves exactly. that they can unify around. And yes. so some of the other things that divide us aren't as important as the things that unite us because we have one vision, one common goal, and we rally to that. So you're holding a soccer ball in your hands. And with (laughs) me, soccer, I've played since I was five. Yes. And the one of the things I give credit for in retrospect, like I was one of the few Americans playing, like in our town was, but when I went to college and was playing, I was one of three Americans on the team, four years. We could different guy, 25-year-old Israeli fighter pilots. 
You don't have any racism because, oh, he's, he's from Somalia. He's probably going to be a forward. He's from Greece. He's probably going to be an outside back. We have a guy from Ecuador. He's going to have great ball control. We never thought of We just thought about the characteristics of the game. You talk about getting over race and yes. all this thing. You play sports. You don't care what's going no on. Doubt. Do you know many places that I have been around the world where you drop this in a street, oh, yeah. you drop this in a field, you drop this even in yeah. uh, an empty hallway, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you get people unified and they start playing and kicking a soccer ball, right. and it's incredible. And I think that's one of the reasons I never got the chance to really play or understand the game a lot growing up. My, you know, and, you would have been great. Yeah, uh, I wonder I, how I don't you would have been. That, but um, I'm sure but, very good. <laughs> but it, but it, it's just it is so unifying. I've seen it in so many places. One of the areas we get to serve, they're using this game to help. Um, bring kids from gangs into playing this game yeah. of soccer, and it really is changing so many lives. Wow, um, you do so many positive things, both. You won your Heisman as a sophomore. Yes, sir. That's the first time I met you. You had a cast on your arm. I did. That's you had right. a cast on That's your right. arm, and you yes. came in, and I go, "This guy looks so young." You still I look was. very. Young. I was like. 19? 19, yeah. yeah. You came in and like, but you had such composure about you. Always, you were very good with public speaking. Did you work on that? Well, um, I didn't, wouldn't say I necessarily wanted to, but I am so grateful. My parents always put me in places to try to communicate science fairs and history fairs and church plays and um, and testimonies at church yeah. and so many places. And, you grew up um, in the mission field. Yeah, and we grew up overseas and we had the chance to, to speak and share in those places. And I'm so grateful because you're so nervous um, to be able to communicate. But one of the things that my dad told me that um, I'll really never forget is, Timmy, why do you feel like you're so nervous? And I would say, because I'm you know, I want to do a good job. And he'd say, okay, that makes sense. But do you feel like you have something to share? You know, this is when we're getting to share our faith, to get to talk about Jesus. Do you know him? Yeah, dad, I know him. Do, do you believe that that's a great message to share? Yeah, dad, it is. So Timmy, why wouldn't you? Is it because you don't want to help other people? Or are you too nervous about how you come across? It your mindset. And it changed my mindset. And it's, it's just, not about it's, me. it's not yeah. about me. But when you, so many times we are, it's how I look, how I come across uh-huh. versus yeah. this amazing message we get to share of free yeah. grace. Yeah. Well, I think raising yeah. a child is uh, a little bit nature, but it's a it's a little nurture, but it's also a lot of nature as well. So name, it's a testament to both her you kid's name is Brock. If that's not a quarterback, I don't know who <laughs> is. I mean, you got to be kidding me. You Wait, know, how much good. time do we have? Can I ask one more question? Real quick. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so my husband's a big. I answered for him. Yeah. I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I also want to know what it was like growing up in South Africa. I hope I have time for two. But my husband's a big um, Michigan fan. Okay. Who do you think's going to win? Oh, it was, uh, the, it's the big game, right? I know. It's so exciting. I wish they didn't play it at noon, though. Like, Why? Uh, noon games are time. great. Oh, you want the uh, night game? I w- yeah, I, I want to get. Time. I want to get the pain over with because it's so nerve wracking. Uh, even just to watch for me because he like rides the highs and lows so much. Uh, well, I'm sure you understand. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, wait, wait, wait. If you were with us on yeah. Saturday night when we were watching Florida, Florida State, yeah. it'd be the same way. <laughs> yes. uh, that's why we need help trying to find perspective through the game. Yeah. I think it's yeah. so exciting. I think it's great for college football. Yeah. Rally so many people together. Mm-hmm. I'm excited for the game. We'll see. It's crazy because you know all the the hardball stuff and everything um, that we're still trying to kind of wait to find out. Yeah. What actually everything means. I haven't. You know, heard signals. The, yeah, yeah, I heard the latest and everything, but it's going to be fascinating. Yeah. Um, I do think that Ohio State's going to be very ticked off for the last couple of years, and so I think both people, both teams, have a, a big edge to play for. Tim Tebow, Demi. Demi. Yes, let's go. Yeah. Demi Tebow. Nailed it. All right, I uh, look forward to seeing you in uh, in Ponte Vedra.
if you want to come over and you need a place to stay and hang out if you're not at the club. I know you don't come from that part of town. Right? <laughs> wow, he just did that. Okay, yeah, we're on the other Hopefully when we're on a flight, you'll recognize us. Absolutely. WOKV is our big our big fan. They're the local station in the area. Uh, thanks so much for coming by, Carl. Thank you. All right. This was fun. Thanks, right. WOKV. Right. You don't even need me. All you need is you three. Back, <laughs> Tommy right. Mulroy's next. Back you were the glue. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. You know, we have uh, a lot of people come on from different walks of life. They usually have points of view. And there's also great biographies, and one of which is my next guest, Tommy Mulroy, president of Soccer Marketing and Promotions, uh, longtime soccer player. He's got a brand-new book about his life. It's called 90 Minutes with the King, the King being Pele, How Soccer Saved My Life. I've known Tommy Mulroy. He's older than me, much more mature uh, for years. Uh, and he's always been a legendary player, and he's an unbelievable juggler. There's nothing he can't do with the soccer ball. But I did not know half the story uh, until I read his book, and I thought I knew him. And you will love this story if you're looking for a great per- story and also how sports can really shape somebody's life, even uh, if it ends up not being the living you make. Uh, this is the book to get. Tommy Mulroy, uh, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, thank you for having me, and happy Thanksgiving to you, your family, your audience, and uh, I hope you just have a great turkey. So, Tommy, you don't have to be a soccer player to enjoy this book. You're in a situation, single-parent family, essentially, and you stumble onto the sport of soccer. How did it shape who you became, and, and why were you so driven to be good at it? Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons. The book is a, I mean, uh I'd be, there's probably teachers rolling over in their grave that I wrote a book, just to be honest with you. The book, the book is, it started out to just be about soccer because I was blessed. I never saw a soccer ball until I was 12. And when I was 19, I was playing against the greatest player in the world in Yankee Stadium, right up the road from where I grew up. So it was kind of like a dream come true. Um, but, but getting there was, was quite a journey. And um, the book talks about the journey and how lucky I was. If I, I think anybody that has a mom that's like sacrifices for you and is a dedicated person and just is behind you, even when things aren't going good, you'll be able to relate to this kind of a book. If you grew up during the Pele era and you loved him and you knew what he did for our sport, put it into the mainstream, these are the kind of things and Unfortunately, part of my journey, uh, there was uh, drugs, alcohol, addiction in the in the family, and you got to deal with all those things, you know. And you try to stay focused. And sport kept me on my road. And uh, you know, today a lot of kids think you can come to practice twice a week and still be a, a messy or a pele, and they don't realize what the dedication is. And and I think the book's a little bit about that too. Yeah, I mean, back then when you were talking about growing up in the 70s, people were outdoors. They're always playing. It's what you were doing. Were you up to no good or you playing a game? And that's what it did in, in the New York area. And then you end up becoming a fantastic player, marking Pele, uh, having a chance to play also indoor. And then you became president of the Fort Lauderdale Strikers and won an NASL championship. But what did the impact of Pele have on your life? Well, he was kind of a North Star, you know, if you will. 
he was the one that kept me straight when I was like falling off or going with the wrong crowd. I always found my way back to the good crowd. I was lucky. Um, life also a lot of life is luck. It's how you deal your, you know, how you take the cards that got dealt to you. But uh, having good mentors, the soccer coaches I had growing up. So anybody that has a mentor that you know when you look back kept you on the right road, was there when you needed them. Mine were always soccer coaches. And, um, and that's what the book's about, how, how you can pass it on to other people and how important a sport can be or something else. It could be music. It could be something else in your life. But, yeah, uh, originally it was just going to be a soccer book. And as I started getting into it um, and I told my brother's story, who wasn't as lucky as I was, um, and my mom's story, and, you know, it just turned from a soccer book into a life book. Right, and your brother did not have sports, and that was an example of how close you came to maybe going with the wrong crowd. You had a few uh, brushes uh, with, uh, you know, getting beat up a couple of times, but you always found your way back to soccer, and you found a way, a ride when your family had no car, and today you'd have trouble playing because most youth sports demand big money. I mean, to play youth soccer today you need a couple thousand dollars a season, maybe more. Yeah, it, it's crazy. The pay to play has just got a little bit out of control. I mean, um, yeah, and back then, I, if I didn't have a ride, I hitchhiked. If there somebody else didn't have a ride, our coach literally packed 15 kids into the back of his van. And when we went through a toll and, you know, the Triborough Bridge, he threw his drop cloth over us so the guy in the toll booth you know, wouldn't see how many people he had in the back of the, the, the van going to a soccer game in the city. So, yeah, it's 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 a different day. I'm not allowed now. Uh, I run a 2,000-kid soccer club down here in South Florida. And, uh, I'm you know, if a kid needs a ride home, he's not allowed in the car with me, right? You know what I mean? So yeah. um, there has to be two kids. And what happens if you drop the first kid off, the second kid's in your car? I mean, it's so different today. Today's world is, is just so different. Gotcha. Hey, um, go, hey, go to school. Go to SoccerTom.com. Uh, find out about everything that Tommy Mulroy is up to. Also, order the book, 90 Minutes with the King, How Soccer Saved My Life. It's about soccer's the the focus, but it's really about, about kids getting a purpose early. Thanks, Tom. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest-growing radio talk show, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're so close to Thanksgiving, the parade tonight in New York City. They blow up the balloons. It's a big thing for young families to go to. It's exciting. Uh, and maybe tomorrow to go to a parade. When you get a little older, you say to yourself, that's ah, a little cold. But it's, when the kids are young, it's fantastic to see the Macy's Day Parade. And now people are extremely worried about the terror attacks because our border is wide open and Hamas and Hezbollah tend not to like us. And evidently, now we're realizing in New York we need a joint terrorist task force. We were defunding it a short time ago. Remember those days? Oh, well, we were also canceling two police academies, so I don't know how uh, concerned anyone is. We're also following a few moving stories uh, on our economy. The jobless claims were a little bit less than everyone thought, so I'm sure the market will like that. So before we get to Governor Chris Christie, fresh off a trip to Israel, 
And before that, it was Ukraine. And then Brett Baer at the bottom of the hour. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. These are highly trained people that they spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars training like Navy SEALs and fighter pilots and things of that nature. And they just ran these people off because they, they wouldn't succumb to or submit to, the, to taking this vaccine. That is Ronnie Jackson, former military doctor officer, all upset about the woke Pentagon costing us power and global prestige, compromising readiness. It all in the effort to be more equitable in our military. Two hundred and sixty eight million dollars on these classes. We'll discuss it. Number two. I tell Democrats, you have got to secure the border. I tell Republicans, we've got people here that if they had a visa, a worker visa permit, and let them work and pay, basically pay taxes, it would be a benefit. That is Joe Manchin. Said, hey, can you control the border? And I'm a Democrat. Now it's a problem for them, too. It's been flooded. This whole border problem has the cities flooded with legal immigrants. Uh, the nation suddenly realizes the Trump crackdown from the previous four years wasn't as crazy as they thought. And a surge in the polls may be behind what's happening. It all could be about illegal immigration and so much more. We'll talk about that. Number one. The only reason Hamas did not kill seven million Jews is because they lacked the military capability to do so. Israel could have killed two million Gazans on October 8th. They chose not to. Uh, that is true. And so well put, Admiral Stavridis. Israel at war. Hostages for a prisoner swap is about to begin. We're going to talk about what it means for the 200 left behind, because this should only be about 50 in exchange for 150 Palestinians and Hamas agents. They say only if there's no blood on their hands. Governor Chris Christie has been globe trotting on all the hot spots. And if you want to be president, that's exactly what they all should be doing. The governor, the uh, former governor of Jersey, is now back with us. And uh, he is uh, one of the few left standing before the first Iowa caucuses weeks away. Uh, Governor, welcome back. Brian, thanks so much for having me. I want to get three this morning. uh, I want to get I want to get to your details on your trip. But I also want to just get on the surface just to tell people at home starting tomorrow, 13 at a time, we're supposed to get about 50 women back and about eight children, children back from Hamas. They've got to round some up. Evidently, other crazy groups have taken them inside Gaza in exchange for 150 Palestinians and a pause in the war. Would Governor Christie have done this deal? You know, look, I I don't know every specific about it, but given what I know, Brian, um, I think I would have made the deal. We need to get these women and children out of there. Um, and, you know, many of them are older women um, who, whose health is really at risk. And the trauma to these children is untold. I met with a number of the families of these hostages uh, when I was in Israel. And I think it, we had to make it a priority to get those folks, as many of them as we can, out. Um, I, I would have tried to negotiate something better. But in the end, uh, getting those people out, I think, is the most humane thing to do for them. And for their families who have been suffering for seven weeks, wondering whether they were dead or alive. You don't have to be uh, you don't have to be General MacArthur to understand what they're going to do. They're going to say, OK, do you want 10 more? We need another day. You want 10 more? Another day of pause. Oh, you want 15 more? Another day. And next thing you know, there's going to be such world pressure to keep the ceasefire. It might be too much for Israel to withstand. We'll see. You tell me how you would play the, how how this gets played out. Do you think from what you know and the conversations you had? 
having having been in one of the kibbutzes, Brian, that was 600 yards from uh, the Gaza border and seeing what Hamas did to them, I don't think there's any chance that Israel will succumb to any pressure for a permanent ceasefire until they believe that they have sufficiently degraded Hamas's military capability so they're not a threat to do something like that again. Um, I, I walked through the homes that are now completely vacant uh, because most of the people in those homes were murdered by Hamas. Uh, and, you know, I went to one home, Brian, of a 24-year-old couple. Um, they were both murdered, um, and I counted the bullet holes in the walls, Brian. It was 140 bullet wow. holes to kill two people. Um, you know, these people, this, these Hamas terrorists are animals. And they don't care about human life. You see the way they're treating their own citizens and, you know, the Palestinians and using them as human shields. So I don't believe that there's going to be any pressure that would be sufficient, nor should the U.S. give in to that pressure. Israel should make the decision as to when they've accomplished what they needed to, to be able to tell those people who the ones who survived. To want to go back to that kibbutz, that it's safe to go back there. And they can't say that right now. And until they can, in my view, they shouldn't stop and we should be supporting them. Right. Uh, so we have that situation. And I just got uh, a text message from someone in the Armed Services Committee in the House. And they said the message to us is you, you fund the Ukraine war. They're tired of funding it. So they want us to provide even more funding for the Ukraine war, the cash and the arms. And he said it's so frustrating because there's no pressure on Europe to stop buying the oil, to stop selling the rockets to Russia on Iran. We know Iran's behind all of this. This is the type of attitude with this administration. They have this superpower status, and they're almost embarrassed to use it. Well, Brian, I I don't understand it, and I don't understand how everyone in this country, and particularly the White House, can't understand that Iran, Russia, China, and North Korea are all in this together. When I went to Israel, Brian, I went to one of the military installations. They showed me the weapons that had been seized from the Hamas terrorists. Um, you had uh, Iranian uh, rockets. You had um, AK-47s from Russia. And you had rocket-propelled grenades from North Korea. These folks are all in this together. We yep. have to con- treat it as a collective, and we have to exert our authority at all of these levels. Um, and the Europeans need to understand that we cannot be having them buy Iranian oil. But part of the problem is that we've so cut back on our own oil production uh, because of the ridiculous green policies of the Biden administration that we can't be a viable supplier for Europe to be able to substitute for the oil they need to heat their homes in the winter. So, you know, it's we have to change our domestic policy in order to strengthen our foreign policy. So listen to this. Uh, Ford came out and said they're going to pare back on their EV production because of lack of demand. At the same time, your successor, Governor Phil Murphy, is pressing ahead with his push to ban gas-powered cars in New Jersey. I mean, what do you, I cannot understand what is going on in this country. Well, what he's trying to do is he, he just had an enormous failure on the wind energy front in New Jersey, which was the centerpiece you know, for his, um, his energy policy. Now he's trying to you know, cover it up because his wife, is now, who's been the, who is a, a big pusher behind their energy policy, is now running for the United States Senate. So now to try to keep his green constituency uh, satiated, he's going to now say we're going to ban the sale of all gas vehicles in New Jersey by 2035. Here's the good news. 
Phil Murphy is going to be gone um, by 2025. Um, and so his impact on policy at 2035, one praise will be minimal because he'll be gone and term limited out as governor of New Jersey. Yeah, I mean, the wind wheels don't work. They're trying to do it on Long Island, too, right now, put him over in Montauk. It's taken forever, it costs too much, and it kills the whales. Uh, it's totally ineffective. But we're locked into these contracts. Uh, we just need someone sane in the White House. So that brings us to where you're at right now. First off, what is the criteria for the next debate? And is Governor Christie going to be there? I've already qualified. It was 80,000 donors. We are well past that. And I've submitted our, our information to the RNC to prove that. And we also have qualified in two different national polls and also, uh, you know, obviously the polling in New Hampshire. So we will be on the stage on December 6th. Uh, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, and we're looking forward to an even smaller debate. Uh, I think now if President Trump continues not to show up, um, we'll be down to four of us, myself, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, and Vivek Ramaswamy. And so I think it'll be even more time for all of us to make the distinctions we need and the points we need to make, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. You, uh, you've been calling out Governor DeSantis and, and, and Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, saying they're not tough on Trump enough. Uh, why does that bother you? Because they try to have it both ways. You know, look, if you want to say you're a 100% supporter of Donald Trump, well, then go ahead and do it. Um, if you want to be critical of him, be critical of him, but don't try to, you know, thread the needle here. Um, and, and the problem is that they're not being candid with people and they're not being with direct with people about whether or not um, you know, they think Donald Trump uh, is appropriate to be president. I, look, I, I did not raise my hand, as you remember, in that first debate. I'm the only one left who didn't raise his hand and say he would support someone who had been convicted of felonies to be president. I simply believe we should have a higher standard for the presidency of the United States. And I don't think you can run against someone mm-hmm. and then pretend you're not running against them, Brian. He's the front runner. If you want to win, you have to beat him. I don't have to beat Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis to win. I have to beat Donald Trump to win. And if you want to win, that's what you should be doing. And by the way, um, making those distinctions is going to give you even more credibility as a general election candidate to beat mm-hmm. Joe Biden. And that's exactly what I intend to do. And tell me if I'm right here, uh, because I know you're somebody that does speak your mind, at least according to sources. Um, a lot of the policies, the reason you back Trump and the reason why they might be backing off a little bit, although DeSantis is saying he's too old and he should have finished the wall, um, that's, yeah, that's, his, that's his new thing. A lot of the policies you kind of agree with, you know, being sure. the, redoing the trade deals, uh, being tougher on Iran, getting out of that deal, ripping up the climate change, trying to build, as I mentioned, trying to build the wall, doing that tax plan. These are the things, the reason why you were tight with him for four years. And almost well, every one of those, you were, right? Yes. Yeah. So yes, one of the, almost every one of those, years. almost every one of those policies, Joe Biden reversed and, and the, he looks terrible, not because of Donald Trump's marketing, not because of his speeches. It's because they're comparing the back of their baseball cards on their well, record. And that's maybe why some are struggling, because they kind of agree with the policies. You don't agree with the person. And here's the problem, though. The person's going to be who people vote for on the ballot, Brian. And what I'm concerned about is that Donald Trump is going to be convicted of felonies come this spring in Washington, D.C. And all we're going to hear about, if he's the nominee in a fall campaign, is the fact that the Republican Party has nominated a criminal. And that could lead to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris winning, 
which will lead to either another four disastrous years of Joe Biden or a combination of four years of Joe Biden and then an incumbent Kamala Harris presidency. We can't afford to take that risk. Donald Trump had his chance. He blew it. He blew it because of his own personal conduct. And we need to have a Republican who will be free of all that to take the case to exactly what you talked about, the back of the baseball card, and being able to implement these policies and be able to get things done uh, for the American people and not make themselves the center of this, of this argument. Donald Trump's problem is he's going to be fighting off all of these criminal charges for the, for the rest of his life. And we can't, as a party, put him before our country. So the the criminal cases, you have to agree, though, this is pure politics in New York City, the civil case, correct? Look, the civil case is a problem, and the stuff in New York City is a problem. But but the stuff in Washington, D.C. and Miami are a big problem for Donald Trump, both the January 6th case and the documents case. And, and Brian, he he's going to now have Mark Meadows testifying against him. Not some, you know, left-wing prosecutor, not some product of the two-tiered system of justice he talked about. This is a guy who was a founder of the Freedom Caucus, who he called the next James Baker uh, when he made him chief of staff, is now going to be in a courtroom under oath saying that Donald Trump committed crimes and that he directed Mark Meadows to commit crimes. What makes you think he's you're you're the legal guy, but maybe I missed something. What makes you think Mark Meadows is going to say that? He wouldn't have gotten a deal if he wasn't going to say that. So they'll they ask him, him, they ask him they before you get a immunity. deal, what are you going to say? Oh, of course. Of course. You don't make a deal unless you know exactly what the person's going to say. And, by the way, that they have evidence to corroborate what they're going to say. You no know prosecutor makes a deal without that. Meadows is going to testify against Donald Trump. This is what people in our party are not listening to. Um, they don't want to hear it. But it is going to happen. They didn't give Mark Meadows immunity, Brian. Because he's going to go in there and say Donald Trump didn't commit any crimes. He's going to go in there and he's going to testify with, I believe, documentary corroboration behind it that Donald Trump directed him to commit crimes and committed crimes himself. When that happens, he's going to be convicted and our party is going to go down the tubes if he's the nominee. Well, let's say this. Um, Obviously, the cases are problematic. Also, if you look at the way... They're going after Trump, whether he's guilty or not, and compare it to Joe Biden and other things. It looks like pure politics. And the other thing I would say is, does it blow you away that Joe Biden is about to get exonerated on his documents case? From what we know, his happened over the course of 15 years and a staffer stumbled on it. And now we found out he, had, he sent somebody out after the midterms to retrieve documents who are in a Boston law office. Does that does that does that comparison bother you? Robert Hur, no leaks. Jack Smith, daily leaks. Look, Brian, we can examine this up and down and look and see what's been fair or not fair. And when the ultimate Biden case comes out, I'm going to be happy to give you my opinion. The same way you remember, I withheld my opinion until all the Trump stuff came out. But let's talk practically politically, Brian. This, you know, this, this whataboutism does not get us anywhere in terms of winning an election. We have to win and defeat Joe Biden. And how is a guy yep. who is now going to be convicted of federal crimes going to beat Joe Biden? I'm telling you, he's going to lose. And when he does, we're all going to look back on it and say, how couldn't we have figured it out? That's why my voice and why, going back to the DeSantis and Haley point, we have to be crystal clear on this to get Got it you. through to our voters.
Governor, you're, uh, you've been fantastic on the stage. You've been fantastic in hostile environments at different RNC events. Nobody looks at you on the stage and thinks, oh, man, I wonder if he understands things. You really do. And I give you great credit for going to these war zones, too. Governor Chris Christie, thanks so much. Brian, thanks for having me. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. I know you're back out on the book tour on Friday. It's a great book. Everyone should go out and buy it. All right. Go get him, Governor Christie. Thanks so much. You and to your it. family, too. Back in a moment. It's Brian Kilmeade. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, Going to have Brett Bear on shortly. Just got to tell you that um, I want you to have a great Thanksgiving, obviously. But I also want to tell you that uh, Teddy and Booker T is now out. Uh, find out if we're still on the list or where we're on the list on the New York Times list. Opened up in on number nine and very busy. Britney Spears has very similar. Uh, it's a very similar book. Only kidding. But it's the number one book, I think. Um, but we'll talk about that. Also, if you want to order it and get it signed, and if you're not in the New York area where, where I'm going to see you, you can find out where I'm going to be at briankillme.com. It goes to my local bookstore. Go to briankillme.com, click on autograph and personalization, and I'll, once a week I show up and we send them, I sign them and send them all out. Keep it here. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. There's 240 hostages that Hamas has right now. So, you know, with the initial release of 50 and possibly up to 30, depending on if the ceasefire extends, what I'm concerned about most, Trace, is that this has the ability to up the ante for the remaining hostages. I mean, three to one ratio, that's what we're talking about, where three is three Palestinians released for every hostage. I think it's very dangerous, especially considering Hamas's past. I mean, the history of Hamas, they had they captured one Israeli soldier back in 2006, had him in captivity for five years until 2011. And they yep. negotiate a release of a thou- over a thousand uh, Palestinian prisoners in exchange for one soldier. So what I am most concerned about is the high stakes that will happen because of this release. I know. Uh, I never thought about that either, because if you want more releases, they'll say, we want more guys in exchange. And then what are you going to do? The pressure from the hostage family got it. And I mean, can you believe that anybody in your lifetime would kill parents and take a three year old? I mean, that's how depraved these people are. I mean, the hope is you get the 50, 13 at a time. You go massively and tastefully debrief them. You put drones up in the sky and make these rescues, make the rest rescues, if that's indeed possible, or at least some rescues, if that's indeed possible. That is, uh, obviously, they said they're going to start letting them out on Thanksgiving. That'll be great. Americans are supposed to be amongst them, including one three-year-old. Her name is Abigail. Both her parents were killed uh, by these mutants. Hamas could potentially locate, they say, some 30 more Israeli mothers and children beyond the initial 50. But they got to locate them with other terror groups. You believe this? So they're saying, and Dan Senor was the first one to tell me this. The minute the hostage was taken, he says, the problem is, I said, why? He said, they've been handed out to other groups. He just grabbed them when they crossed the border. Uh, The Daily Mail has a different story. Uh, They say that they previously expressed a willingness to release uh, a woman uh, in the past. And they said they wanted to release her, but they didn't pronounce her dead when they didn't get any type of response from the Israelis. So they went in and killed her. Uh, they said that uh, the speculation was she, her name is um, uh, Emily Hands. 
She was Irish-Israeli, and she was going to be celebrating uh, her ninth birthday in captivity, uh, and now she's gone. Unbelievable. Uh, I just don't, I don't understand. I can't understand that type of evil. Here's Ted Cruz, cut four. It is a bad thing that Hamas is going to have four days to regroup, that they're going to have time to refuel, that they're going to have time to get stronger. And I think it's very important that even while we are grateful for the return of the hostages, and I think Prime Minister Netanyahu quite wisely said that he will continue the pause uh, for additional days if additional hostages are getting released, that we not lose sight of Israel has laid out two objectives here. Number one, getting the hostages home. So this is making real progress. But number two is utterly and completely eliminating Hamas. And, and, and I do worry that, that as, as hostilities cease for a short period of time, that international pressure and sadly pressure from the Biden White House will only get greater. That's true. And the President Biden made the right move initially going over there visit. I thought it was nece- wasn't necessary. It kind of worries me he's that, that old. But when Jordan canceled their meeting in Egypt, Alito canceled their meeting and Abu Mazen canceled his meeting, I'd say you got to cancel that meeting. But having said that, got him the arms, got him everything. But if you're going to pressure him behind the scenes to stop doing what they're doing, I thought it was put brilliantly by Admiral James Stavridis. Everyone's talking about the humanitarian way that the Israelis have to fight. How dare you blow up a hospital? Well, it's a headquarters. Where are the tunnels? Right there. There's the ladder. What else do you need? Western public, the journalists, so-called journalists, they don't really believe it's a full headquarters. When they have other hostages on television saying, other Hamas-captured uh, terrorists on saying that we were told to go to this main hospital and uh, dress as doctors and nurses. Here's Admiral James Stavridis. I think this puts it perfectly what everyone's mindset should be about Israel. Cut one. Israelis were saying, go into Gaza, simply flatten it, destroy mm-hmm. the entire thing. Um, they chose not to. They chose to, to take this path using precision approaches to include special forces. Um, th- the only reason... Hamas did not kill 7 million Jews on the uh, 7th of October is because they lacked the military capability to do so. Israel could have killed 2 million Gazans on October 8th, killed them all. They chose not to because that's not who they are. And those, I think, are something we should bear in mind is the false equivalency you sometimes hear. Uh, No kidding. That, to me, is I wish I came up with that explanation because if someone dies in collateral damage, that is a tragedy. The Israelis hate that. They hate it as much almost as the family that lost their loved one because it also defeats their own cause. Nobody wants to kill innocent people. But when you dress and hide, when you dress like a civilian, when you hide among civilians, when you go into sacred spots like hospitals and mosques and set it up as headquarters of your military apparatus, what choice do you have if you're Israel after you just lost 1,200 people in the most brutal fashion possible? And some of the protests coming up and cropping up against Israel, do you know there's, they're going to start ra- uh, rallying around Staten Island and Long Island for the Palestinian slash Hamas. I see some of these disillusioned clowns wearing the Palestinian headdress as if that's a community and the, uh, the Islamic extremist. That's a philosophy that you would embrace in the West. Really? Are you a woman? You want less rights? No education? 
You want to feel uh, be assigned to a family instead of picking out a spouse? If you're gay, trans, do you think there's any tolerance among the Palestinians and Hamas? These people are nuts. Eric Stackelback, uh, host of The Watchmen uh, on Fox News, was on Fox News Channel. And he's a terror, uh, terror expert, too. Cut six. The IDF has made great gains in Gaza, has tremendous momentum right now. And now that's coming to a screeching halt for at least four days, maybe longer. That's number one. And number two, look... As Abe said, Hamas's asking price, will it continue to rise in the days to come? Hamas's ultimate goal is to stop the fighting altogether. Another thing to watch, Trace, even as, look, I've interviewed family members of the hostages. It will galvanize, I believe, the Israeli public, them coming home, the images of that. That's a great thing. But another thing to watch, as the fighting stops in Gaza, presumably over the next few Mm -hmm. days, what about the northern front? What about the southern front? What about Hezbollah and the Houthis? There's no guarantee they'll hold their fire over the next four or five days. So that's something to watch. Brett Baer joins us now. He's always somebody to watch at 6 o'clock or when he's doing specials on, on Fox Nation, hopefully on the channel, uh, to rescue the Constitution, George Washington, and the Fragile American Experiment. Uh, Brett, welcome back. I mean, we're at the high-stakes moments now, hours, we hope, from the beginning of a hostage release. But it's been, so many people are bringing up some great points. If you're giving up on three-to-one Palestinians— to to uh, to an Israeli hostage, the stakes are only going to get higher, and the demands can only get greater. You would think. Yeah, I would. I agree. I think um, you know who's coming up with the math. Like where where are you getting the? Um, why isn't it one for one? Uh, there's all kinds of questions here, but obviously they want to get those hostages out. Um, and the question is, you know. How? Why is the onus not on Hamas to release all the hostages? Um, you know, in in exchange for a long term ceasefire. Um, I, that's just not how it's phrased in and how it's covered. So, I, I agree with you. It's going to be interesting to see how it all comes together. Right, and th- th- we've been talking about this for a while. But the bombing's still going on. This morning, when we were tossing out to Tel Aviv, doing Fox and Friends, you saw the explosion. So they're trying to bomb as much as possible while they can. I imagine, Brett. I never really look for terrorists, but we have these great drones, and they're going to go be undetectable to the human eye. And I imagine they will hover over Gaza. And as these hostages emerge, we'll see where they came from with any luck. And I would think the hostages will have a story to tell. And we might be able to make this more of a rescue than a than a negotiation. Yeah, you would think that there's a lot of intel being gathered um, about how these hostages are dealt with and how they're transferred and, and all of that. I think, um, you know, the Israelis are really good at this ground fighting and uh, have trained um, through some of these tunnels. You know, you think about it, it's 25 miles long, six miles wide. Gaza is. There's 2.4 million people there, but there's 300 miles of tunnels underneath. Uh, that's extensive. And um, they're not tunnels to to provide safety for people. They're tunnels to hide, you know, the terrorists uh, popping up and, and fighting Israelis. Benjamin Hall goes to Ukraine, has an hour-long interview with Zelensky, most of which aired on your show, Special Report, last night. The guts it took to get on that train and go back there, uh, missing a leg, eye, everything that he went through in the tra- trauma, and then coming up doing that interview. What's your takeaway? 
Yeah, I, I'm really proud of him. I think he does us proud. Um, Benjamin has been through a lot and um, has really, really come up strong. Um, and to go back on that train and get back in there and to actually be honored by the Ukrainians um, for being one of the journalists that has uh, – you know, obviously sacrificed uh, to be able to cover the story, I think is really important. And it's also, it was important for Benji to to uh, talk about our fallen right. colleagues uh, who didn't make it. So, Brad, I, I'm in, I just can't believe we're even debating the need to fund Ukraine. I'm, I'm just stunned that you have a Lindsey Graham on the right, Jack Keane on the right. The president never really makes his case. Kevin McCarthy probably did the best uh, making of his case on his exit interview in his final meeting. Are, are you shocked in something that used to be so abundantly clear who the good and bad guy is? There's a big push in this country to not fund uh, their their survival against Russia. I am pretty shocked, actually. Uh, you know, it, it's just not been it's not been portrayed. You know, the president hasn't used his full bully pulpit uh, to push it. I don't think. You know, we only got the Ukraine speech in the Israel Hamas speech. You know, it, it was sort of added on, um, but that was about 600 days into that war. There were many, many atrocities of kids, Ukrainian kids, being killed and taken, um, horrible things that have happened on the ground inside Kiev. But those stories have not been told as well unless we're on the ground telling them. So, and um, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's tough to imagine, but we're not fighting, you know, with U.S. troops uh, and people still – are having a problem with it. And think about this. No, they don't have a Navy. They don't have an Air Force, but they blew up. They, they forced the uh, Russian Navy from the uh, uh, from the sea. Uh, they knocked him out of Crimea. And uh, without an Air Force, they're still making incremental gains in the north. Can you imagine when they get their pilots trained, if that indeed ever happens? We seem to be just taking our time with that. But, Brett, you have a, a special out. It's on Fox Nation. It's based on your book. Uh, to rescue the Constitution, George Washington, the Fragile American Experiment. Here's a little of that special. Statesmen like James Madison from Virginia and Henry Knox from Massachusetts believed time was of the essence and that Washington's leadership was essential. Guys like Madison, you know, that are working on him to say, hey, you know, we're going to need you to carry us through. We need your name, your prestige. This is the kind of role that George Washington played. He was the guy. If you had something happening, you had to bring him there. Otherwise, people wouldn't take it seriously. He's not sure, but eventually he realizes, yes, it's, it's now or never. Washington sees this as if this country fails, if the Union falls apart, what would the war be for? Exactly. You also have the History Club a duel across time trying to get kids excited about our history. But uh, it's just an important story. People think, hey, they won the war and... Here we go, America. It didn't happen like that, and you outlined that. Yeah, I mean the country was falling apart. Really, we didn't almost we almost didn't get to the starting line, but it's that time, that uncertainty that the Constitutional Convention is called in May of 1787, and and that and what comes out of that really is who we are. And arguably, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for George Washington. And that's all in your book. Hey, Brett, are you going to be uh, hosting tonight? 
I am not. I am driving currently across Florida to Naples, where I'm going to be at the Barnes and Noble, and at 1 p.m. Nice. Uh, signing History Club books and and to rescue the Constitution books. But um, and then I'm spending Thanksgiving uh, with my family over in Naples. And you will sign so, books for them if they want. That would be for free. I, I, yes, that would be for free. <laughs> That's great. So, what what time is the signing? Uh, 1 p.m. today, okay. 1 to 3 at Barnes & Noble in Naples. All right. They'll get a picture and get a book and get to meet Brett. That is cool. Boy, are you wearing shorts? <laughs> All right. Happy Thanksgiving. He will not answer the question. He's not going to wear the question. It's unbelievable. I finally could make some news. Brett Bear in Florida signing books. Brett, thanks. Happy Thanksgiving. Back in a moment, Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. General Washington, we need your strength for the fight ahead. We fight for a country of our own, a new nation, where we choose our own laws, choose our own leaders, and choose our own systems of weights and measures. Distance will be measured in inches, feet, yards, and miles. So 12 inches to a foot? 12 feet to a yard. If it were only so simple, 3 feet to a yard. And uh, how many yards to a mile? Nobody knows. How many feet to a mile? 5,280, of course. <laughs> it's a simple number that everyone will remember. Let's confess, it feels a little complicated, sir. Why not use meters and kilometers? We will, soldier. But only in certain and popular sports like track and swimming. <laughs> For popular sports like football, we will use yards. Football, sir? Yes. It's a sport where you throw a ball with your hands. So in football, there is no kicking? There's a little kicking. Kick the ball to get points. How many points, sir? Sometimes one and sometimes three. So that was from SNL. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's creative, right? It was very funny. It's like, you know, Washington's fighting for the, you know, America for weights and measures. And it goes on, honestly, it's a whole five-minute skit about, you know, Inches, centimeters, everything that makes zero sense. But then, yes, the football was very appropriate as well. You wouldn't know, and either would Eric, but there was a big push. I was probably in sixth grade. They kept saying, we're going metric. Everything's going metric. you got to make the conversion. Really? There was tests on it, everything. All of a sudden, I'm in like eighth grade. I'm like, wait a second. What happened to metric? Ninth grade? What happened to metric? I'm in college. I go, what, guys? What did we go to the metric system? We just lost interest. It would have been too easy. It would have been too easy to just do that. As a country, we were willing to change. And then you just, I don't know. Ah. We're going to stick with inches and yards. Yeah, because sometimes, yeah. and then sometimes when people just say some, some things are metric. Give me a liter. I like a liter of Coke. Yeah. Really? Going to run a 5K. Gonna, why is that? Okay. Why are you doing? And what do I say? How many miles is that? Yeah, 3.2. Right. Why are certain things, <laughs> we, might, we have stumbled onto an inconsistency in America that shall not stand. I, I finally had something, I, this is something I could protest. I think you should I might do block it. a bridge. You might do that on Thanksgiving Day. Go block the bridges over the, the metric, metric system. <laughs> refusal to follow through. These half measures of measurements have to stop. Right? Hmm. That's pretty, that could be that, my catchphrase. That, I, think that, I think that's a very good one. It's excellent. Wow. All right. So do you know what the number one topic on Thanksgiving will be? You, Teddy and Booker T? Nope. What? I actually think it's going to be Taylor Swift and Jason I, I agree. I think everyone I think, likes to talk about it. I, but either, they think, so either they say, I don't care, why does everyone talk about it? Or they just talk about it. You want to That's say weird, because if you, if you say you don't care, why does everyone talk about it? 
It shows you care. It's true. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to one of the last hours uh, of the week before Thanksgiving. I know it's a big countdown. Hopefully you're getting to where you have to go. I keep seeing this stat that this is the most traveling America's ever done in our history. So I'll go with it, which would lead to delays, especially with our Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, over his head from the day he got the job and decided not to show up for two months. Uh, Dan Senor is standing by. Denise Grace uh, Denise uh, Grace uh, Gitchum. Gitchum is also here, former White House aide and author of Politics for People Who Hate Politics, How to Engage Without Losing Your Friends or Selling Your Soul. And we're talking about conversations on Thanksgiving. Uh, so there's a lot of breaking news. We'll follow it, including a jobs report. We, uh, we had 206,000 jobless claims, which is they expected 226. So that's relatively good news. Uh, we're also waiting on hostages. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. These are highly trained people that they spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars training like Navy SEALs and fighter pilots and things of that nature. And they just ran these people off because they, they wouldn't succumb to or submit to, the, to taking this vaccine. Uh, that is true. And now they say you can come back even without a vaccine. Woke Pentagon costing us power and global prestige and compromising readiness, in my view. And it all starts and ends with this White House and our enemies know it. We'll discuss it. Number two. I tell Democrats, you have got to secure the border. I tell Republicans, we've got people here that if they had a visa, a worker visa permit and let them work and pay, basically pay taxes, it would be a benefit. There you go. Uh, the uh, Joe Manchin. Now it's a problem. The Dems see it as well. And I'm talking border. It's been flooded, flooding our cities with illegals. It is now taking over our states. It is affecting elections. It's affecting budgets, especially here in New York. And now the Democrats even say by a wide margin that illegal immigration is a problem in America. That's exactly what Trump ran on in 2016. He's going to try to run on it again in 2024. Number one. The only reason Hamas did not kill 7 million Jews is because they lacked the military capability to do so. Israel could have killed 2 million Gazans on October 8th. They chose not to. That is true. Israel at war. Hostages for prisoner swap are about to begin. We're going to talk about what it means as over 200 plus are in captivity and the deal that's out there on the table. Essentially, as we understand it, it's going to start, the, the exchange will start 12 to 13 people a day. It's supposed to be for the Israelis getting back 50 women, plus they think eight kids. Uh, they are also are demanding, as Netanyahu, Hamas uh, find 30 more Israeli mothers and children beyond the initial 50 because they are spread out through other terror groups. And in exchange, they're going to have to give up 150 uh, prisoners and maybe bring them right over to the West Bank. Dan Senor knows all about this, former foreign policy advisor in the Bush administration, author of a new book, The Genius of Israel. Dan, from what you know, is this a deal Israel should make? Uh, it's a, it's these, these decisions and trade-offs are, are really difficult, Brian. Uh, I, I think the reality is, I've, I've said from the beginning that 
uh, my sense was Israel had twin goals for this war. For its, for its, it's a defensive war. They're responding to Hamas's massacre of, of October 7th. They had twin goals. Goal one was eradicate Hamas. Goal two was get all the hostages back. And so there's been a question in Israeli security circles as to whether or not those two goals reinforce one another or whether or not they conflict with one another. Meaning if your only goal was to eradicate Hamas, that if you suddenly layer in the rescue of hostages, you have to make certain decisions that make the eradication of Hamas more difficult, like what we're about to experience, which is a four-day pause in the operations uh, against Hamas. However, what the Israeli security establishment argued, and apparently quite persuasively when they presented last night to the Israeli cabinet, so they presented to the Israeli cabinet, and there were some in the cabinet who were much more opposed to this deal before the briefing from the security uh, leaders than they were after they'd gotten the they, they were skeptical. They were opposed to the deal, and then they they came around. And why they come around, from according to public reports, the reason they came around is because the security establishment, the security leadership, persuaded them that these twin goals reinforced one another. That is, that the only reason Hamas is giving up hostages now is because they are under so much pressure militarily that Israel is prosecuting prosecuting this war very effectively, much more effectively than I think either Hamas or the IDF anticipated. And so because of the progress Israel's making and because of the pressure Hamas is under, Hamas is willing to give up these hostages. Uh, and, and the military leadership argues that once the four days is over, we'll be able to resume. Now, is it a setback, losing those four days? No question. But is it a setback that Israel can't overcome? They argue no. They argue that this is we'll, we'll be able to, to to make up for lost time, and in the process, we get home a bunch of hostages. So, Dan, I'm sure you've played this out, and I could see a scenario where we get 13, 13, 13, 13. We get up to 50, and we get the eight kids, let's hope. And then we exchange the 150, let's see it. And then they say, well, if you want 10 more, keep the pause on. Right. You want 10 more? Keep the pause right. on. Oh, I'm sorry, right. not tomorrow. I'm going to eat in three days. I'll be able to get you 15 right. more. And then you get the pressure, understandably, from the families of the hostages, especially yeah. if there's children still back there. So yeah. that's the – and I'm sure Israel has thought this way beyond what I could imagine. Yeah. So you're right um, that you know they're, they're worried about that, although – uh, you know, I think the way the Israeli government views this is each one of these is a negotiation, meaning that is to say just because Hamas may come back to them in four days and say you want 10 more, you got to do this, is is a decision and a bridge to quat to cross at that time. It doesn't mean at this particular moment. I mean, their attitude is you just got to deal with what's what's on offer in front of you. And what's off what's on offer in front of them right now is getting back these children, getting back a number of these women and and then live to fight another day and we'll dis, we'll evaluate you know the next pause and the next mm-hmm. exchange then you know i mean it's just like we got to deal with what's in front of us i i think it's difficult to overstate brian how i mean you know israel israel's population is as you know is about 9.3 million people so there's for every israeli there's about 35 to 40 americans just to give it in proportional terms so israel's getting the equivalent if the deal is executed uh, and Hamas is true to its word over the next four days, Israel's getting the what would be the equivalent of 1,750 American 
yeah. children hostages and and women back. That's the equivalent. If you put in proportionate terms, it's like one thousand seven hundred fifty. Oh, by the way, while there's still forty thousand Americans still being held in those tunnels, in in Gaza by Hamas. So the scale of this for for Israeli society is just difficult to overstate. Almost every Israeli I speak to has some kind of connection, has has either knows someone who's been taken hostage yeah. or knows someone who knows someone. So the opportunity to get these children back in a way that does not, according to the security leadership, it, they're not saying it doesn't set us back at all. They're just saying it's worth the trade-off. So I, a couple of things. There's a sentiment inside Israel, according to the, the papers I've been reading, we got to neutralize Hezbollah at the end of this. That it's not okay if Hezbollah, you know, just knocking down their missiles out of the sky. That that's another problem, a massacre waiting to happen. And at the same time, does anybody think it's okay for Israel to let, let Iran get a nuclear program? I'm sure they've thought about this, this conservative administration. Yeah. So on Hezbollah, look, I think um, I, I think it's a matter of when Israel has to confront Hezbollah, not if. If if Israel has learned anything uh, with regard to Hamas and Gaza, it is that they cannot have a genocidal actor on its border that has written to its charter the wiping out of the Jewish people and the state of Israel, and and as we learned on October seventh, a commitment to actually doing it. They can. And by the way, Hezbollah is ten times the strength of Hamas in terms of manpower, in terms of weapons capabilities, and they're actually better trained because they spent the last few years fighting in the civil war in Syria. So they're actually better equipped to fight. Israel can no longer. So the the idea that Israel had a containment approach to Hamas in the south, in Gaza, which is to say, all right, you know, we'll learn to live with them. They'll run Gaza. They'll stay out of our hair. We'll have military skirmishes every couple of years, but it'll basically be contained. That's over. It's obviously over in Gaza, and I think it's just a matter of time before it's over in Hamas. With, I'm sorry, it's over with Hezbollah. Iran, though, is the big challenge. That is the that is the I think Israel has basically had a containment approach to Iran, too, and I don't think that's sustainable. And more and more Israeli leaders I know say the same thing. It's not sustainable. And what we've done with Iran in the past, we cannot do in the future. Now, the difference between Israel taking on Hamas or taking on Hezbollah is I don't think Israel can do what it needs to do to Iran without American support and American cooperation. And obviously there will be divergent views between the Israeli and American governments on what is the best way to deal with Iran. That would be the problem. So now you have a situation inside that country where you are looking to keep public opinion to the point where you can re-prosecute this war. And are you convinced from what could happen on this exchange that we'll be able to get enough intelligence to make more rescues and less swaps. For example, you put that undetectable by the human eye drone in the sky and you watch these prisoners come out of the earth or come out of buildings, you'll have clues to where the rest are, let alone the debriefing all these freed hostages will give. Yeah, absolutely. I think I look I think there's a few factors here. First of all, I think Israel will learn a lot. Uh, that will be useful from these hostage releases, A. B, don't underestimate how the the Israeli public is pretty hard-headed right now on the need to eradicate Hamas. Don't underestimate the degree to which this the the first release will could make them even more hard-headed. They're it's it's they're going to learn a lot. I mean, these these young people, these old people who are going to be released, 
Um, I, I just think they are going through a trauma. The country's going through a trauma. They're going to describe their living conditions. They can describe what they went through. I, I, my, I mean, obviously it's hard to know the psychology of a nation. You know, you know, obviously it's just the psychology of a nation is a big subject of my book. It's something I spend a lot of time about, about the psychology of, of Israel and the Israeli people and Israeli society. But I got to tell you, I, my sense is I've never seen this kind of consensus in Israel, so broad, so deep, mm-hmm. um, on on what needs to be done, and so hard headed. You know, the, the the head of the Labor Party in Israel, all the way on the left, doesn't have a th- nice thing to say about anyone in the current leadership of the Israeli government. Is totally on board with the Israeli government's policy right now. Yair Lapid, the head of the center left party, the formal opposition, same thing. They're critical, obviously, of Netanyahu, but they are supporting right. the government's policy, and I just think that is going to get even hardened, even more hardened once these hostages come out and the, the Israeli public is exposed to the what I fear are horrendous stories. All right, so Dan Sinor, our guest. Dan, uh, the other news came out uh, that Russia's Wagner Group, which is Russia, is preparing to provide air defense to Hezbollah or Iran, one of the two. Do we just have to sit back and watch that happen? No. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, if if, 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 the, if the Wagner Group is playing that kind of role... Um, that you know the the U.S. and Israel uh, need to to engage. I mean, it's 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 just totally unacceptable. But they're just going to say, "Hey, uh, Lebanon is my ally. They want missile defense. Right. America gives missile defense to Ukraine. Why can't I give it to them?" Well, this is a huge problem because it's not what, what Hamas, the Israel-Hamas war has revealed. That it's not just about Israel and Hamas. It's not just an Israeli-Palestinian issue. There are all these. Bad actors in the region: Hezbollah, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the Houthis in in Yemen. I mean, we can go down the list. There's all these bad actors in the region, and now you have China and Russia in the region too, who have deployed major assets, especially China. And so this troika of Tehran, Beijing, and Moscow having major influence in the region is another reason why this war with Hamas is not just some little local flare-up that 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 may be graphically uncomfortable to watch, but is ultimately geopolitically insignificant. It is not geopolitically insignificant. It is geopolitical. We could get a broader regional war here with with the world's major powers all involved, China, Russia, and the U.S. All right, Dan, is there anything else you could tell us about? You mentioned everybody's being unified. Are they getting a little war fatigued in Ukraine? No. Excuse me, in, in Israel? No, no, I would say the opposite, Brian. I think, uh, and I have friends now, you know, every few days, I, you know, a friend who's, you know, a family member's killed or a family member that's wounded or a friend that's been, you know, my friend Avi Sakharov, who's the co-creator of the show Fauda, just his his um, stepdaughter's boyfriend was just killed, paratrooper, horrendous story, great kid, uh, Shahar Friedman. Um, every few days we get these stories, and yet the Israeli public's mindset hasn't changed, which is if if the state of Israel is going to exist – we have to take out this threat. We cannot learn to live with these threats any more than any other modern civilization would remove a barbaric threat from its border. Israel's, the Israeli people's attitude is we got to do this. It's going to be long. It's going to be hard. But they're as committed as, as I've, I've ever seen, if not more. All right, Dan, congratulations on your book, The Genius of Israel. It's selling great, and it's so important for people to get a fundamental understanding of the country, especially these clowns that are out there protesting against it. Dan, thank yeah. you. All right. Thanks, Brian. Be well. You got it. Meanwhile, we come back. Your turn. First turn. Uh, first time so for the show. one 866 
408-7669. Call on being part of the show. And then at the bottom of the hour, Denise Grace Gitchum, the most important segment yet, politics for people who hate politics, how to engage without losing your friends or selling your soul. And I'm talking about Thanksgiving, the first opportunity. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I tell Democrats, you have got to secure the border. I tell Republicans, we've got people here that if they had a visa, a worker visa permit, and let them work and pay for their own keeping and basically pay taxes, it would be a benefit while we're waiting to adjudicate them. But right now, I know in New York what's happening, you're all paying millions and millions of dollars trying to house and keep people off the streets and this and that. And it just doesn't make any sense. And that is Joe Manchin. Same sound reasonable, but there's, there's a downside to letting people work while they get adjudicated. One, it takes three years, maybe more. Number two, message is come to America. We'll give you a job. You'll have a better living, better life, even though you'll be waiting on your long-time status. But there's going to be really no ramifications. It'll, it'll cause a flood. You just have to shut the border down and work on things that you can agree on when it comes to immigration, uh, keeping our first-round draft picks out of these elite universities here to help our uh, tech sector and our financial sector. That would be a great idea. And also more work visas to help out in the blue-collar jobs, many of which are not filled by Americans because of a lack of workforce. Uh, the mer- remarkable polling has come out that shows even Democrats in the Siena poll are saying things that sound somewhat like Donald Trump. For example, 20 years we've been talking about how great immigrations are. immigration is. Now, 35 percent of, uh, of Democrats – uh, say they are a benefit. 37% of Democrats say they are not. 75% of New York Democrats said the recent influx of migrants to the state was at least a somewhat serious problem. 53% overall of New York Democrats agree with the statement New Yorkers already have done enough for new immigrants and should now work to slow the flow of migrants out of New York. Think about that. In the beginning, if Donald Trump had said things like that, you don't, you know, you're a white supremacist. You don't like immigrants. You don't like Hispanics. You really think that now? Do you know Univision is getting blowback for having Donald Trump being interviewed, even though the ratings were through the roof? And Donald Trump's numbers are increasing with Hispanic figures? Don't move. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we are back, and with me in studio is Denise Grace Gitchum. She's a former White House aide and author of a brand-new book, Politics for People Who Hate Politics, How to Engage Without Losing Your Friends and Selling Your Soul. Denise, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Brian. Thanks so, for having me So on. what years are you in the White House? Oh, so I worked, um, I started on the campaign with Governor George W. Bush. I worked for Carl Rove. And a funny story that I actually include in the book is um, when we talk about our identities. 
and how we identify as, you know, one party or the other. I had a misidentification when I worked on the campaign, which was I was the head of Hispanic outreach, but I'm actually Chinese. <laughs> uh, okay. So I was kind of known as the Hispanic liaison uh, during the campaign. And then I went to the White House. I worked for Harriet Myers. And then I went over to work for Attorney General John Ashcroft, who, honestly, he was a living example of many of the principles that I espouse in the book. Uh, which was understanding and listening? Just such a good man of faith who really lived true to his character and the spiritual principles that he espoused. Understood. So when you were there at the White House, what was the main takeaway that you that you still think about today? Well, I remember what we campaigned on and what Governor George W. Bush, later president, lived up to, which was that he ran on a platform of being a uniter, not a divider, which really sounds foreign in today's political realm. Which is what you try to get across now. It is. It's really something I believe is necessary. So in your book, Politics for People Who Hate Politics, you obviously don't hate politics. I love politics, but there's moments. I have my moments. (laughs) Do you think it's changed dramatically since you were in the White House? I think everyone thinks things have changed. Maybe it's just a sign of my age. You know, back in the day, things were so good. I think we all reflect, you know, with uh, some sort of colored nuance um, that isn't necessarily true, like a rose-colored lens. But I think it's always been acrimonious. I remember when we went to the White House after two recounts, it was pretty bad in Washington. 9-11 brought our country together. And I think it's so important that we, we tap back into that feeling that we had after 9-11 because I don't believe that our greatest threat to America is external. I actually believe that it's internal. It's our division. Right. Uh, that is true. I almost feel like people are, uh, are percolating that and causing that. Yeah. So you sit down at the Thanksgiving Day table and you look across and you hear – your nephew or niece say, man, I was I'm exhausted. I was protesting for the Palestinian <laughs> movement last night and Hamas. I feel so bad. They've been bombed so much. Obviously, to me, that would be something. It's a no. It's either you engage somebody like that or you ignore them. How would you handle it? I think it's important that you never try to change somebody's mind. There's really no way to change somebody's heart on an issue. The best way to engage in a conversation like that is to, A, establish your motives first, which is, You've really got to determine what you want the outcome of this conversation to be. If before it's not going to be, true, yeah. Before you do, establish your motive, and that's to preserve this relationship. You know, you can't have any influence on people if you don't have a relationship with them. So, really, establishing your motive from the outside of the conversation, and then speaking your truth. Be would be speaking your truth in love. I think so many of us get so triggered. I think really holding mm-hmm. back and saying, "Okay, God, I always pray, Lord, help me to speak this truth in love," because all of us has different perspectives on truth. And there might be something in what your niece or nephew are saying that has legitimacy. Maybe they're expressing compassion for the Palestinian people. So Many you would ask them? Yeah, absolutely. Say, tell me why. Because people generally express anger. I learned this from my therapist. People generally express anger because there's hurt underneath their anger. And underneath that hurt is an unmet need. And so when we dig a little deeper and we look for the golden people, most people are full of gold. And we're just so focused on the external, that right. we don't dig deep enough to understand that. You don't realize that the minute you, someone like you would bring up and go, so you protested for the Palestinians. <laughs> Tell me about that. They yeah. know exactly. Oh, yeah. You obviously yeah. don't agree. How about Hamas? Yeah, yeah. it's going to be a rough conversation. But I think that if we decide from the outset, like I said earlier, that our intention is to really hear this person and not be so consumed with our own perspective and espousing it that we're able to respect them and have honorable assumptions about them. I think that we'll really learn a lot. We all have blind spots in our understanding of the world. And I think just having that humility and engaging with grace, and and I really want to say this, I can't overstate this. It's so important to recognize that unity is not the same as conformity. 
Our job is to speak the truth right. in love. And there's no such thing as love separate from truth. And you could even look at what's happening in Israel. They have this consolidated government. It doesn't mean they agree on everything. They, yeah. They'll way to the left, way in the middle. Right. Then you got Netanyahu to the right. And they say, well, we now have a coalition government. But they still disagree, but they agree to work together. Right. And you and I don't have political twins. I mean, do you know of anyone right. who agrees with you on 100 percent of everything that you say? No, but when they disagree with me, it turns out they're wrong. Yeah. They've done studies and everybody <laughs> is wrong. Studies. And it's it's scientific. With. Right. It's I, science. I can't go against science. You know, you can't question science. There's facts. And Anthony Fauci is science. Right. We know that he never did say anything There we wrong. go. You got to read the book. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> so do you probably know him. Who? Did you know him, Fauci? Oh, Fauci? No, I didn't work. I didn't work oh. in the government back then. I was okay. happily ensconced in my home in California. <laughs> right. No, well, because I meant he was around during the Bush years. He might have been, but I wasn't you cool enough to him. meet him. Yeah. You didn't ask for his medical advice. So do you notice now we're more polarized than ever? I think, you know, you are, we'll probably say that comes. in 10 years. Uh, I think that, you know, I don't know that we're more polarized. I think our, our differences are actually just coming to the surface. I'm not sure that means that we ever were united as much as I hoped we would be. But I do think that these issues force people to, to pick a side. And I think the key for us is to decide that we're all on the same side. We want the best. I, even people who I completely disagree with, I generally believe that they think that what they're saying is actually the best. And mm -hmm. if not, it may be that they just haven't heard all the perspectives. And you, so you have two ears and one mouth. So you should do more listening and talking. <laughs> Is there any yeah. time where you think to yourself, I got to walk away from this conversation? Um, I mean, there's there's times, of course, there are. I think that there's there's wisdom in that sometimes when you know you're not going anywhere and it's only getting worse. But I think it's key that you do stick around and try to listen as long as you can. And when you leave, you just leave with love and grace. Right. Uh, in theory, that's good. Uh, yeah. You say a lot of people engage in distractions. Yes. In what way? So I think that often we get distracted by what the real issue is. The real issue is that when we're talking about politics, we're talking about what's in the best interest of our country and each mm -hmm. other. And I think that as long as we recognize that our, if we stay undistracted by all the noise, I think a lot of distractions come from the media. I think they come from the newspaper. I think they come from Instagram. And I think that distracts us from what do we really believe in and what's the real truth here? And, uh, and how important are you to me? I think that question is at the root of it is relationally, like, is this issue, arguing about it, more important than preserving this relationship? And you got Mary Matlin, obviously yeah. Republican, yeah. James Carville, married <laughs> I don't him, know how they do it. <laughs> right. Uh, the Democrat, and they're both staunch both directions. Yeah. So I guess they agree not to agree. Yeah. You know, I used, it's funny. I used, when I worked for Carl Rove, I used to fax things. This is how old I am. We would fax things over to their office, and you'd have to call in advance and make sure Mary was there to pick it up because you didn't want to accidentally land something in James's hands, right? <laughs> but, right, right, right. But it's um, those days, I remember reading their book back when I was early in my political career. The days were a couple like that different in their politics could actually come together. I yearn for those days. I don't know about you, but I just miss the days when people could have a political conversation and it wasn't a conversation about you being bad. It was a conversation about you being wrong. Yeah, I think uh, that makes sense. What I think is so unique now is we know about the f famous divide in the Republican Party. Just look what happened with Speaker. Right. Right. Uh, eight people stand up, blow up uh, Kevin. Um, Kevin McCarthy, I still don't know why, and I'm sure in retrospect, if he gave them sodium pentothal, they'd say I shouldn't have done that, but they would never admit to it. And now we end up with uh, Mike Johnson. We'll see how that long that lasts. But in the sub-story of the Republicans, you have those eight, and then you also have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's never going to agree with any of the New York congressmen you have here. And then you have, since the Israeli war started, 
you're seeing instead of the niche squad, you're seeing a huge, maybe a third of the Democratic caucus disagree with mainstream Democrats. That is very unique. It is unique. And, and again, I don't know that those issues weren't latent. I don't know that those feelings weren't always there. I think that probably were. And these issues are actually bringing them to the forefront, which I think offers us a great opportunity. Because anytime things are festering underneath the surface, it manifests in conversation or in your attitudes mm-hmm. as disdain and contempt. And I think that when you're able to bring those into the open, you can start shining light on it. And let's start talking about facts. Let's start talking about the issues in a manner. I always believe in more speech. Let's put it that way. It's right. good. It's good for our political discourse. Right. And do you also do you also believe that uh, when things start breaking up into their sides and both sides get their nominee, I find this being an interesting time because you got to have a Democrat come out and say, you know, I'm worried about Joe Biden's age. You know, I see Gavin Newsom. He's got so much potential. But once Biden's firmly the nominee, you'll never get the you'll never get them to say, I don't see any weakness. (laughs) Eighty one is young in my book. So now is a very interesting time. You could kind of play on the edges. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. It isn't. It isn't because in the primaries you see all I was I ran for Congress in San Diego in 2016. And as you know, that was a very acrimonious season. That's really when a lot of the sort of the. Trump's know, disdain. Yeah, it was really hard running down ticket from Trump. And um, it helped most people, just not in my district. And what you saw was just such a such strong feelings about about the candidates. And there was no way to bridge that conversation or no interest in even what anyone down ticket from him believed in. Everyone just assigned the same beliefs to all Republicans down ticket. And so just distinguishing ourselves and just talking about the issues and how we might differ, even in nuanced ways. It's important to stay true to who you who you are and what you believe in and why you're out there. Yeah, understood. And finally, when you look at this, after people like to blame Trump for everything. Yeah. But after Trump goes, do you think things unite? Do you think it'll be easier for the parties to get together? Do you see any or is the Trump impact going to be felt for generations like Andrew Jackson was uh, for a while? That's a great question. You know, I haven't thought about that very much. I do think that the Republican Party has had a reckoning. I think the party that I have been involved in building forever. We've started to see cracks and even people who aren't necessarily identifying as Republicans are drawn to some version of Trump's Republicanism that is just different. You know, I consider myself mainstream conservative, limited government, all the things that you think of when you think of classic conservative. Trump kind of threw a wrench in all of that and is making us question whether even the folks that we elect that we like so much from our party are actually looking out for our best interests. And I think that's healthy. Right. I do think, too. Remember, if you start talking about the wall, if the Hispanic community will hate you. Yeah. That was the autopsy after Mitt Romney lost. Right. And there comes the president, the, the future president of the United States. And he says, yeah, we're building a big wall. You know, yeah. and if you, you know, Mexico isn't sending their best. Yeah, yeah. And next thing you know, his, his numbers, he got better, more Hispanic votes and. Than Mitt Romney got. Because he's speaking some than truth. Like got. he's saying things that appeal. Trump is very unique in that he knows how to tap into the electorate and the sentiments that all the people in Washington, you know, I've been in and out of Washington, but when you're there, you really are in a bubble. The Beltway insulates you from reality. And so if you're just making policy without any real perspective, the people on the border are the ones that want to be protected the most. It's the people in Eagle Pass, Texas, that are right. seeing thousands of migrants come over the border that want to be protected from the impacts of that. And Denise, uh, Grace Gitchum, our, Gitchum is our guest. So, Grace, uh, last question. When you see now how polarized people are and they're about to go to Christmas, they're uh, about to go to Thanksgiving, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know really what your relatives think already roughly. Yes. 
And I know what you say. Don't say they're wrong and don't look to win an argument. But are you better off overall talking more about the Lions <laughs> and the weather? How about them Warriors? That's yeah, my life. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> in San Francisco. I think, from. yeah, exactly. And my team are the Dubs. Um, I think it's important that you, you read the room. You know, you just gotta have wisdom about whether or not this person is maybe mature enough to have a conversation that's productive. But then if they're not, and some, you know, we can't control other people. We got to keep our eyes on our own paper. But just resolve in advance that whatever the conversation veers into, Mm -hmm. that you're going to be the person that adheres to these principles of speaking the truth in love. And again, this is easier said than done. Please recognize that I am preaching to the choir, which is myself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have struggled and I have failed and I continue to work at being the person I would like to be. And uh, Dana Perino endorsed your book, says Denise has great advice for steering clear of trouble so that you will never lose a friend because of politics. And she's also great at that, too. Great she's wonderful at it. She's exceptional. Uh, Denise Grace Gitchum, thanks so much. Go out and pick up her book, Politics for People Who Hate Politics, How to Engage Without Losing Your Friends or Selling Your Soul. Denise, thanks. Thank you, Brian. Back in a moment. Want even more, Brian? Download the podcast at com. Every episode, exclusive interviews on demand. More of Kilmead coming up. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. There is a surge there. It's not like the southern border, but still hundreds of thousands of illegal crossings last year. And the most notable statistic here is that you have more folks on the terror watch list coming over the northern border than the southern border. So there is risk there. We've lost a lot of our federal funding. Operation Stone Garden resources have been moved to the southern border. Personnel have been moved away. Uh, When we asked that to be replaced, they wouldn't do it. So we did it ourselves. We put our own money, our own resources, our own alliance, if you will, of law enforcement together. Uh, that is Governor Sununu talking about the crazy things happening at the northern border. It gets almost no publicity, but it's actually driving CBP crazy as well as Homeland Security because word is out. You can get to America now. You can achieve the American dream and we'll pay for it. Really? No joke. So just a quick note. Uh, Teddy and Booker T is out. I've been touring all around. I mean, I'm looking at the schedule. I don't know how I signed off on this, but on this third. So we have Thanksgiving coming up. Uh, Thanksgiving holiday week. I get that. And everyone's all sitting that holiday. But when you're done, there's going to be November 29th, an opportunity to meet me in New Jersey at Point Pleasant Beach at Little Point Bookshop. Then de- uh, December 1st, virtually sold out for KTFK over in Eureka, Missouri. Then we're over to the Bush Library December 2nd. The next day, 3 to 5 in the afternoon. Just make your reservations, please. And then Harker Heights, Texas, which will be great. I do that before I actually go to the Bush Library. So I'll see you there. Click there for tickets. And one of the most fun groups you'll ever be a part of. If you have a chance to go to Fairhope, Alabama, do it. Uh, that'll be December 3rd, Page and Pallet. Uh, that's at 32 South Section Street. And I'll be signing then over to Dayton, Ohio, with the WHIO listeners, December 8th, 7 o'clock. So we'll see if we could sell that out, too. I had an unbelievable time two years ago in Lexington, Kentucky, at the Joe Beth Booksellers. So I'm going to see them December 9th, and i got to see you at 7 o'clock at night. And then over to Charlotte, North Carolina, at the Barnes & Noble. That's just a straight signing. Maybe get a chance to talk to you at 4 in the afternoon. The next day, December 13th. 
Doylestown, Pennsylvania, that's a town that looks like Christmas. It actually personifies Christmas at the Salem United Church of Christ, uh, Doylestown Bookshop. Uh, so go and make tickets uh, available. We usually sell out there. And now Fox Nation is co-sponsoring a couple of events you got to go to. Over in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Munn Hall to be specific, at Carnegie of Homestead Music Hall, December 15th at 8.30. I'm able to talk about all the books in respect of American patriotism. It'll be inspirational, motivational, on stage, great show, reenactments, great moments in American history. Probably the most fun you'll have this holiday season. Then over to Holland, Michigan the next day, December 16th at 8 o'clock, the Holland Civic Center place. Tickets are going fast. Everybody gets a book. So you get a ticket, you get in the book. You have VIP opportunities. We get to meet a half hour before, and that'll be great. We, then we go over to uh, on December 17th, right before Christmas, Wichita, Kansas. I have never been. I can't wait. We're lucky enough to have a great affiliate, KQAM. We'll get the word out. And hopefully if you're in Kansas... Uh, you'll have an opportunity to do it in person. And if you aren't able to get to me on any of those stops, if you go to briankillme.com and just click on personalization, it goes to my local bookstore. I'll show up once or twice a week, depending on the velocity of orders that are coming in. And then we'll sign it and we'll send it out. So I hope to see everyone there. There's a special on Fox Nation about Teddy and Booker T. Uh, how two American icons plays the path to racial equality. It'll eventually be on the channel, I think. But I've done 57, What Made America Great, different places in American history, everything from, from Hemingway uh, to a look at the, uh, to a look at the, uh, the Reagan Library. We've done it all. I think this is the best. I think it's the best we've done because so many, so many reasons. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.